about to be happening. <gasps> it's happening. Hi. <laughs> Jessica <laughs> Poundstone. <laughs> this is amazing. This is major highlight for me. I've got to say, since I first started getting to know your work, I was like, am I ever going to get to spend time talking to Jessica Poundstone? And then I started getting to know you through just like shared worlds on Instagram. And then we realized we have a lot in common. And most recently we were about to start talking about work, which is appropriate. But before we do, I just want to say that Jessica is one of those artists that captures emotion using color. I feel like there is a an elite little group like our Leah Rosenberg and Jessica who managed to really understand and are unlocking a, a sort of new path with emotion. And I'm so admiring and I love that so much. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but first let's talk about work because okay. this is the thing. We are experienced women, right? We have careers. We do many things. And we were just talking about how it's very hard when you're working at companies to maintain your hands-on job when there is management work to be done as well. And like, how do you manage to not be a manager if you want to actually be a hands-on person? So I would love to hear a little bit from you about how you went down that path of Managing. I I failed to go down that path. (laughs) I should have insisted. (laughs) I mean, for many years, I stayed as an independent contributor, which is sort of like lingo for doing the hands on work. And I don't know, I, I do feel like there's just this sort of unspoken rule in corporate America that if you want to grow and move up the proverbial ladder, whatever that is, who knows what's at the top of it. I don't even want to know that you become a manager. And I think it's very hard to say no to that and maintain the perception that you're ambitious. You know, it's like, well, why would you want to keep doing this low tier stuff? You know, and it's like, it's really frustrating that independent contributors get this really bad rap, I guess, for like not wanting to go into management and not wanting to have more of a say. And I will say that for a long time, even as an independent contributor, I was sort of still welcomed into the upper echelon of like the decision makers in the company. It didn't last for super long at my last job, but it was a huge just recognition that I had a lot to contribute, even if I didn't want to like manage the day-to-day lives of five to 10 people, which I don't. I completely agree with you. And this has been a very hard one journey for me to really embrace like, hey, I'm a high level IC as they call it. And There aren't that many high-level ICs because for the most part, people end up jumping into the perceived power structure or something. But I'm very pleased to say, and maybe Pinterest is unusual, that there are a few of us. There's a a growing handful of people who want to be Mm hands-on, who are very experienced, and who are sort of forging our own paths together in a product lab. So basically, like this is a place for really experienced, knowledgeable ICs who are still, you know, high level. And that's just, it's new. It's new. And it's like teaching what this path could look like. What kind of company were you at? Or I was at a software company. Yeah. So like a SaaS software company. And that's been mostly what I've done. Like my distant past is agency world and 
doing public relations, public affairs, crisis communications, mostly in a writing capacity. And then, you know, it's that story where I went to work for one of my clients and then that just sort of led to other jobs in, in companies that were similar, which is mostly SaaS, you know, web-based software type companies. So and mostly business to business type settings. And what yeah. was your art identity? I mean, that seems like a very two separate worlds. Yeah, I know. It's so funny looking back on my whole like journey up until now, like even as a kid, I was super into art and art making, but I grew up in a family with like, you know, my parents didn't do much college. They didn't really have a very good concept of what was possible in the world, kind of beyond our world, didn't have a lot of resources, didn't have, you know, whatever. It was a pretty small world that I was living in. And for whatever reason, mostly television, let's be honest, like, I'm like, oh, there's this whole other world. Here's how you get access to it. I swear to God, I think it was the show Mad About You that I was like, I really like Jamie and she's in PR. So maybe I'll do that. (laughs) I mean, this is how it happens. If you're not living right near it, this is how it happens. Where where did you grow up? I grew up in Portland, but like outer Southeast Portland. It's not the cool part of Portland. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. There are lots of Portlands. Portland. People don't realize that, but there are lots of Portlands. <laughs> yeah, there are. And yeah, that's where I was. I was going to like religious, you know, schooling. And by the end of high school, I had a really fantastic art teacher there who really kind of took me under her wing. I think she understood that like... I was not understood by my family very much, but even with that really great art teacher, I never had a clear sense that art was going to be a possible moneymaker for me. And I did not want to be poor. I'm like, in my life, I would like to discontinue living as a poor person, (laughs) as a poor person and living with a person with, you know, some stability and access to, to opportunities and money and, you know, not have to worry about money every single day of my life. And I don't feel like art is what's going to get me there. So I really dug into writing and was actually going to do a communications degree in college, but then found that all too theoretical back to the hands-on thing. And so I was like, if I'm going to go here, I'm just going to like it. You know, I'm going to like what I'm doing. So I did a general humanities degree. I was working three jobs. They had something at the very small liberal arts college that I went to. It was called a certificate in public relations. And essentially what it was, was business writing and business journalism. It was taught by hands-on like practitioners who were working in the field. It was really a genius, perfect sort of mix of like a trade thing and a scholastic thing. And so that's what I did. So that's how I ended up in these worlds of agencies and writing and marketing. But like all through, I was still doing stuff on my own, on the side. And did you think of it back then? Or did you even conceive of it this way as like, I have to do this for my work and this is my true self? Or did it not even come out in that way? No, it didn't really come out in that way. It was just more like, I'm doing this stuff and I'm really good at the writing and stuff, which is also kind of a difficult position. (laughs) You know, it's like, and I didn't feel like I didn't belong. I felt like I was learning a lot. I enjoyed most of what I did. And the other thing was like, right when the internet was happening, like blogs of all these illustrators were blowing up and like Carrie Smith was a person I followed at the time. And she was just starting to publish books. And it just seemed like, oh my God, there's this whole world that I can participate in. You know, Flickr was just getting started and all of that business. And so, yeah, it was just like my full-time hobby. (laughs) I didn't have kids. I had a dog. That was it. 
And it was like during that time, I made a book proposal, which I'll probably end up revisiting now. I was doing illustrations just for myself. I started a jewelry business that was like shrinky dinks jewelry that was like super graphic designs. So I'd always, always, always been doing something. It was something in the mix on the side. And it really wasn't until about four years ago, four or five now, that I was in a job before the job that I was just in, like two jobs ago, that I really was like, this is not working out. A lot of white men running things. Sorry. (laughs) And I just, it was not a fit for me anymore. And so I was like, I'm going to look for another job. But while I do that, I have to do something else. So I started an Instagram account, the one I still have today, and I started working digitally. It was something I'd been messing around with on my phone before in this app called Brushes, which is essentially just like a blank, you know, like Illustrator. You open it up, there's a blank canvas, you can do whatever you want. I had started to find out more about David Hockney and his iPad work. And I was like, well, shit, if he can do it, I can do it. Like, if he's going to do this, I'm going to try this. And so I started just playing around with it. And it was like, I became obsessed every oh, wow. during my bus commute. I'm doing, you know, this stuff during, you know, while we're watching TV at night, while I'm in bed, I'm just like, my head is exploding with ideas of how this can work. And then I hit on one kind of, you know, combination of like brush textures and transparencies and all of this stuff. And it was like, this is it. This is my starting point. This wow. is what's happening. And it wasn't figurative. It was abstract. It was shapes, all this stuff. And it sort of took over. Yeah. It almost was like, I mean, I know that experience. I had that experience too, where I was hitting a wall. Just, I kept hitting a wall so many times in my work that it almost wasn't an option. Like this is not going to work anymore. You can't keep doing this. It's not going to work. You got to figure out. And through that, like sort of found that thing like you did where I was like, I'm obsessed with this, which for me was like mental health, like understanding how anxiety works and writing about it. And I know that feeling where you're just like, I can't get my head's exploding. I can't get enough of this. Yeah. So that you took another job after that though. Yes. Yeah, I did. And how long did that last? Well, I just quit it in September. Wow. So it lasted about five years. Oh my God. That's huge. That's like a month ago. So are you going to get another job or are things changed down? Okay. So this is a big moment. Yeah. It's a big turning point. It sounds like we're in a similar situation as well, where my husband is, he works part-time, but he does all the house stuff, Mm -hmm. all the cooking stuff. Most of the kids. doesn't surprise me, Jessica, because we have so many things in common. (laughs) And he also does all the bookkeeping and everything else. And I was like, look, I want to quit my job. I want to try dialing up all of the art-related income streams, and I want to see what happens, and I want to do it within a year. Can we do it? And he's like, yeah, let's figure it out. Good for you. So here we are. Month two is almost complete. And I will say it's been fascinating to, I don't know, I have so many thoughts about quitting a job. It's like, you know, it's this pinnacle of like, yes, quit your day job. Woohoo. But then it's like, okay, now you are in a new world and you make all of the rules in the world. And so what are your rules going to be? Not rules, but guidelines. How do you want to live? You want your day to look? All of those things. Well, somebody has to become the boss and you become the boss then. And like, you're both the boss and the employee for yourself. Yeah. In a way. But it's, it's almost like, I don't even want to use any of the same paradigms. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I get to live my life in a way that I want to live it. 
my days, my time. You know, when Henry, my son asked me the other day, he's like, do you have work to do? And I could tell he was like, or do you want to watch a show with me or something? And I was like, this is why I'm not doing that other job anymore. So I can say yes right now. Yes, I can watch X-Files at 4 p.m. Yes. (laughs) So so great. So great. So I'm still, yeah, very much in the early stages of what does this mean? What does this look like? Who am I now? The best advice I got about marriage when I got married was marriage is another country. You know, it's like you've moved, you have culture shock. This is a different world. And that's, I feel like I'm still kind of in that. Mm I think that's well said. You know, what's so funny is I perceive you only as an artist. Like Mm. that's the you I have witnessed. Yeah. So I didn't even know about this other work part of you. Yeah. So that's also interesting because perception that people have based on social media versus sort of the reality of the situation. We've never talked about this, but what's your sort of mental health background or like Mm -hmm. what's that story about for you? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe like a lot of people in my age bracket, I used to consider many years ago, you know, that counseling or therapy was something that you get if you'd had a significant trauma. And I was like, I mean, you know, I'm all right. (laughs) I didn't have any major significant trauma. I'm okay. And it wasn't until I turned 40. So I'm 45 now. I turned 40 and, you know, we had been super involved. Ben and I have been super involved in a religious community for many, many years. So like his dad is a pastor in a very conservative denomination. And then we moved to a less conservative denomination and whatever church and religion and all of that stuff had been a huge part of our lives for a really long time. And at around that time and around 40, which my therapist later was like, oh, you're right on time. <laughs> 40, 40 by the way, was my big moment too. That's yeah. when I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Like everything changed for me. So Something about 40 <laughs> yeah. where it's just like, okay, I'm done with all yeah. of that. That's, yeah. uh, we're done. I'm not doing that anymore. So I left our community, left our church community. It was about a ton of different things, but it was such a huge splinter, you know, between Ben and I, for our family, for our kids who had like grown up in the church, they didn't understand why I was leaving. And I mean, a lot of it was about the LGBTQ stance of the community, which was, you know, not okay with me and never had been okay with me. But I finally was like, okay, this is the line in the sand. I'm not going to participate or affiliate with this situation anymore. Because I love the LGBTQ people, not because I don't. (laughs) I figured. So leaving was not something I was going to be able to do by myself. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't stand up to Ben in that way. Not that it was huge. He was open to it, but it was just extracting myself from a situation like that had so many different implications for myself and my family, my immediate family, and for that wider community where we still did have really good friends and had for, you know, 10 years of friendships and community. And so, yeah, I went to therapy. (laughs) I was like, I am going to lose my mind if I can't get help with this. And so, yeah, I mean, I still remember the first time I walked into my therapist's office, I was like, so, you know, I just need some tips on like how to go about fixing my problems and like, what would you recommend? And like very much like, I have problems. Let's solve them. What are your, (laughs) what exercises? We'll probably get, we'll probably get this done in a couple of sessions. Exactly. (laughs) Like I got six months, you know, we're yeah. going to, we're going to get this taken care of. And yeah, she yeah. was appropriately 
neutral, but I could see the smirk. (laughs) And I was like, I sense that I have the wrong idea about this. And so it completely changed my life. I've been in therapy with the same therapist for five years. We started couples therapy. I know Ben has his own therapist. So we are super therapisted up. Wow. (laughs) Wow. How does it look different now than five years ago? Like what has changed sort of, I don't know. I mean, mental health and like your community and your social community and your identity and feeling seen, like those things are all completely intertwined. So yeah, I feel like I'm a much kinder person to myself and others. I hope others, (laughs) others can weigh in whether that's true, but I feel less frantic. I feel way more confident in myself, in my instincts. Trusting myself is much easier. Taking my feelings seriously. I think before I really had the idea that feelings were just something to be dealt with, like, except for if they were from my kids, in which case I'm like, oh, yes, all your feelings are valid. (laughs) You know, it's like that meme is going around. It's like, oh, it's okay to have like, you know, slacked off during the pandemic. It's like, but not for you. Yeah, but not for me. (laughs) You know, feelings were okay for everybody, but not for me because they were just annoying and, you know, stopping me from doing the things that I wanted to do. So yeah, just feeling more settled, more grounded, more willing to be present in the moment, sort of constantly future casting. Like, oh, I want to get here. I want to get here. I want to get here. I'm an achiever on the Enneagram scale. And I'm like, let's go, let's go. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So how, with your work, with your art, how has your relationship with feelings changed that? Or like, how do you think of emotion and your work? Almost everything that I do in the work is done from a place of intuition, emotion. It's not calculated. You know, it's really interesting when I look at a lot of the color theorist type folks that are out there, and I've certainly not been exhaustive about it, but I've read a lot about a a lot of the ones that are out there. And a lot of them are men. And a lot of them are super about the science of perception or, you know, things like very almost clinical, a scientific or clinical approach to it. And for me, it's like the complete opposite. It's like, I want to create artwork where people feel joy or comfort or feeling seen or feeling energized or wrapped up in good vibes. It's a much more, I guess, traditionally female set of goals. (laughs) And that's perfectly fine with me. I think it's really interesting. I mean, being an overthinker, I spend a lot of time articulating things, like saying them in my head in words. And my healing journey is about not forcing myself to do that or not doing that, not going down the path of always trying. Now, I'm not always great at it, but really just trying to get out of my head. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing is that. <laughs> I don't need yes. more theory. I don't need more color theory. I don't need, I need help leaving some of that behind or, you know, moving away from that a little bit. And there's a real parallel there with my spiritual journey too, where it's like, I don't need more dogma. I don't need more doctrine. I don't need more rules. My suspicion is that most organized religions are too wrapped up 
in making rules and pinning shit down when what we really need is a lot more of being willing to accept that we cannot possibly know everything that is good and true in the universe. Things are way more mysterious than anybody would like them to be, maybe, you know, than, than maybe the majority of religion, religious Americans anyway. There are some people who really do get it, who are very spiritual people. But it's like, yeah, I don't want more words. I want more experiences. You know what's interesting? And this is the first time I've ever thought this, Jessica, but like religion is almost a spectrum between community and organization or organizations. And it's like, the offering of community, like just pure community without a set of rules is one thing. And Mm -hmm. then you get into like super dogmatic religion. And then there's just like a lot of space in between, but I've never really thought of like, it's a gathering of people and sometimes just out of, I don't know, human nature, it becomes a business, Catholic church business. And like, what does that mean? And how do you build a business? And what happens if there's bad management of the business? And Mm -hmm. so it's just interesting to think of how people organize themselves and our need for community and what can that sort of become? How do you find your community now? Having been in many spiritual communities over my life, it's like, I kind of know a lot of what the pitfalls are in those types of communities. But also I've known enough people who are like, I'm done with that. I need a new community. I'm going to go to this community. And like the stages of community, it's like the stages of grief. You know, it's like, oh, as it turns out, humans are still human everywhere. It's not just the religious humans that can be shitty. It's all humans that can be shitty or struggle with community or there's Mm -hmm. conflicts and issues. So at some point, probably two or three years ago, I realized I don't know any other artists really. Mm. And If I want to feel more comfortable with myself in the world as an artist, I need some better examples of people that I actually know. And so, you know, I'm I'm sort of by nature an introvert, but I have what I like to call my extrovert persona that really helps me out occasionally. (laughs) And so I just put that extrovert persona on and was like, Hey, Instagram person that I really love your work. Would you be willing to have me come to your studio? I would really love to meet you and what's going on. And I mean, like, I didn't go bonkers bananas. I really wanted to only connect with people that I genuinely resonated with their work. And there was really just a handful who were here local. So I did that. They all said yes, you know, and one thing led to another in a beautiful way. And so that's really how I have the community that I have now, which is some people from my past select people who, you know, who I still really connect with. And then all of these new people that I've met probably in the last two or three years who are, you know, either artists or related to the artist community. And I have a particular person who I was lucky enough to meet Amy, who is just a super connector. You know, she's one of those people just like, oh, you don't know so-and-so, you usually meet so-and-so. Oh, let's have a party in my house and you can meet these five people. And she knows like all the good people. And so I've been, yeah, super lucky to have been brought into that circle of folks. I think it's really been- important for people listening to just mm-hmm. really hear this because mm-hmm. creating community, there is an intention to it sometimes. Like it does take a little bit of work to 
start to identify some of those potential bridges. Like I recently met someone whose writing I had just admired and she said, should we meet in person? And it was wonderful. I mean, it was so wonderful to connect with someone through their work and I'll get to see her again. And like, I've never had that before. This is the first time in my life that I've had that. And I think part of it is you have to put your work out in a way that people are able to see you. And that's what you've done, you know? So you've got your work out there and people are seeing you too. Yeah. You just don't know what could happen once you start moving outward from yourself, being able to manage your self-doubt, not get rid of it because it's not going anywhere, but you manage it and start getting comfortable with people really knowing you. Maybe you've experienced this too. Like earlier in my corporate career, there was like, okay, there's, there's corporate Jessica and she knows how to be at meetings. And, you know, there's still some of that, but now that I'm not in that environment, I'm like, I don't need that persona anymore. Mm. That can, can go away and more vulnerable versions of myself can be what I lead with. And that just creates a different kind of connection right from the start. Do you think of yourself as an overthinker? I think therapy has really helped with that for sure. And also I really have a bias toward action. And so achiever, achiever, Enneagram. Yeah. So it's like, I can't let myself spend too long in rumination phase. Although I hit it pretty hard. Like we had to replace a TV. And I'm like, you know, five hours of research later, I'm like, this is what I'm getting. I'm getting it on Amazon. Here I go by, you know, and Ben's like, wait a minute. I was like, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I've already done all the research. I've gone too deep already. I've gone too deep already. Yeah. Yeah. In the history of our marriage, I've always been the one who's like, okay, we're not going to talk about having a baby anymore. We're just going to go for it. We're going to see what happens. You know, whereas Ben is a nine on the Enneagram, who's like the all seeing peacemaker person and will avoid conflict, avoid decisions, you know, he had whatever, there's so many upsides to his thing, but that's really where we've been able to help each other. I think moving forward, here we go. And he's like, okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we have not touched on? Mm. I can't wait to share your work with everyone. That makes me happy. That's sweet. You know what? One of the things that I had written down was, um, I took a stand-up comedy class during the pandemic, and it was something I'd always been interested in doing, like the performative aspect, the writing aspect, performative aspect, less interested, writing aspect, like how do you make a joke? How is this done? So it was all on Zoom, and we went around the circle, and it was like, why are you here? You know, a lot of people were there because they wanted to perform, or they had performed before, and they wanted to get better, or whatever. And I was like, I just want to look at life more and more through a lens of humor. Me, again, the resonance is deep. Obviously, Jessica and I have identified that we share a love of a certain British comedian (laughs) named (laughs) James A. Caster, which some of you don't know yet, but you will. Because he's going to be huge here in America too. (laughs) But I've always been like this. I think humor has been one of my coping techniques. And also the consumption of humor. Like, give me comedies, give me stand-ups. I mean, I was like the 14-year-old who loved Albert Brooks. So I 
I mean, modern romance, when I first saw modern romance, I was like, this is really speaking to me, but why? (laughs) But yeah, I mean, there is just something about that world that feels extremely familiar and extremely cozy. So I'm curious, how did the taking of this class, like, did you feel like it was taking you into that world or I don't know, how was it? It was fascinating. I get super enthusiastic about stuff and I got super enthusiastic about that. And it was like, you know, we do these exercises during class and be like, okay, two minutes, here's what you're going to do, you know, go over and write. And then everybody would come back and he's like, how was it for you? And I was like, it was super fun. And everybody else was like, oh my God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. You know, the, the teacher that I had, whose name was Alex Falcone, he teaches through Helium Comedy club anybody I think if they're still doing it online can take classes from him so his approach to comedy teaching and writing is that he wants to hear funny from you from your exact worldview from your experiences he doesn't want generic jokes and so to get there you really have to plumb the depths of like okay, what are the stories that you tell at dinner parties that are funny? Like family stories, vacation stories. Like, what are your stories? What are your weirdnesses? What are your quirks? And then it's just like, there's your material. God, that's so great. Yeah. So it's that's like, so great. Sort of, I mean, a lot of therapy parallels. I, I absolutely. Basically like celebrate your weirditude. I had very religious grandparents that did have an impact in our family, but my father was a total independent thinker. And he was always very nice and upbeat about it, but he didn't really have that impact our house that much, but it, it was certainly there born again, Christian. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I was just extremely anti-religion. Like I, I was just angry with some of the things I saw. I like, even as a little girl, I was like, LGBT rights are important to me. They weren't even called that, but I was like, gay people matter. They've always mattered to me. And I don't like this. And so I, though, lately have found a bunch of comedians like in the Christian world that I'm like, because I'm like, this is an interesting world to get to know. Like, I love worlds. I love these little worlds and I love hearing how people make sense of them. And I think comedy is a way we make sense. And this is not a new thought, but like, this is a way we make sense of our worlds. And I love like the difficult stuff. Like, I want to hear these different worlds talk about the difficult stuff. Yeah, I can't wait to get this list. But like yeah. Pete Holmes is one person that I love who did come from He's great, yeah. Christian background. <laughs> Taylor Tomlinson is another one mm-hmm. that I know did. And mm-hmm. then the guy who has toured with her quite a bit that we actually just saw here a few weeks ago in Portland, Dustin Nickerson. Yes. And which was hilarious because we were there at the Helium Comedy Club and the people next to us, I could sense that they hadn't been there before. Then they said they hadn't been there before. And then they're like, oh, yes, we're so excited because so-and-so said he was a Christian. And I was like, row, row, you're going to be in for a rough ride. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently there's like a whole route of like Christian comedy at mega churches too. That's like a whole thing. Like that was, I don't know if you, did you watch Crashing, the Pete Holmes series? Oh, yeah. 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 So like that whole tour of like, yes, yeah, oh yes, God. I cannot even imagine. Dustin is like a clean comic, whatever that means. He yes. didn't have a lot of challenging jokes, but the openers sure did. <laughs> it's 
That's amazing. I mean, I want it for like everything. You know what I mean? I want it for like cultures and, you know, I just, those are the voices I'm always drawn to anyway. Cause I'm like, you're the truth teller, but you figured out how to do it in a way that like, there's an EQ element to having to read an audience. So like, I want to say something weird and awkward, but I'm going to say it. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. I would just recommend it, you know, (laughs) like if you're interested and it's not even like, oh, I want to learn how to do it. It's just for the experience of understanding something about how it works and, and a lot about yourself. My God, what a cool recommendation. I love that. Yeah. And there's so, again, so many that you can do now over Zoom all over the place. No matter where you are, yeah, you know, you can find something. I think I'm going to have to do it. Oh, you should. Thank you for the wreck. Yeah, <laughs> That's should. really good. <laughs> not right now because I'm too busy, but like when I'm not, I want to yeah. do that. Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. I really, I cannot thank you enough for being willing to like, just get on with me, get on, show your face, get on this call. Like, I know that's like a, you know, it's takes a little bit of effort to like gear up for this. So I, I mean, I put on eye makeup. Can you see it? Yeah. Yes. It's beautiful. (laughs) I wish I could say the same, but like when I do, I feel like I'm a painted doll. No, 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 no. You know, it's so hard for me to rock makeup. (laughs) <laughs> well, when yeah. we get together, yes, I'll, you know, I'll, if you want to, I'll, I'll yes, I do. My makeup bag, and we'll see. What you do. <laughs> Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me so much.